Well, a tsunami of spending is coming. Hundreds of billions of American dollars are about to gush forth from Washington in service of accelerating the vaunted energy transition. But there's a problem. The problem could be called the physics of money. I mean, the nature of energy systems, we could call it the physics of energy systems, is immune to being altered by any quantities of money. But the nature of economic systems and political and social systems are hugely impacted by the quantities of money involved. So my goal today is to explain the implications of the physics of money, which I admit have some repetition from things I've said before, but then I'm assuming you haven't slavishly listened to everything that I've said in earlier podcasts. And even if you have, some of it bears repeating. So economists and politicians both have a favorite phrase for all kinds of aspirations that haven't happened or aren't happening fast enough for their tastes. The phrase is market failure. You know, X or Y is supposed to have happened or happened faster well, from eliminating poverty to curing cancer or ending the age of hydrocarbons. I mean, some of the goals obviously are noble. Some are just aspirational. But if it hasn't happened, it's always a market failure. So the solution to a market failure, well, it's to intervene in the market, obviously. The essence of the debate in politics, but in governance in general, is this kind of delicate and elastic balance between letting markets function efficiently and as freely as possible, and the government's role in facilitating or steering, impeding uh, the efficiency of market functions. And, you know, these are the kind of debates that take place all the time, uh, implicitly, if not explicitly. But what I like, what I want to get to is that they take, they have to take place by definition within the framework of what's actually possible. Uh, the stuff I'm calling the physics of money when it comes to a lot of things, but today we're going to talk about the energy transition things. So outside of... Um, sort of the police state class of command and control that governments can implement. Money, it's money that's the central feature of all the tools that governments have to fix so-called market failures. So what you'd want to know is the extent to which the physics, if you like, the physics of nature, the nature of systems, uh, impedes the ability for money to simply fix, quote, market failures. So before I get to the specifics of the energy transition stuff the you know the physics of money and the energy tra transition let me let me use an analogy with the caveats that uh, obviously analogies are never perfect or precise but they're pretty illustrative and let's start with the fact that everything not some things everything uh, about supplying energy and supplying food and fuel everything in society all services everything is about building machines that just you have to have the machineries to do it the, the, whether it's the machines to build buildings we live in, whether it's machines to provide the services like you know car service or electricity, food, everything involves building machines, using materials that exist in nature, and then employing the law, laws of nature or trying to work around the laws of nature to produce something useful for society at large. And useful is a very fuzzy word, but it means useful means something I can do at scale that people can easily use for most, if not all people, that we can afford. There are a lot of times in history, many examples of engineers and innovators building machines 
that can perform what seems like uh, you know feats of magic. Literally, it seems like magic. Uh, but there are machines that never get widely used, never scale. They never become affordable. They never change everything. The odious phrase, this changes everything. You know, whenever the stunt is done, after the stunt with the machine, you know, the parlor trick, uh, you hear a lot of headlines or see them about, this changes everything. Well, no, often it doesn't because it's a stunt. It's something you can do at scale. Let me, let me, so the analogy, the analogy is the moonshot. Uh, perhaps the word moonshot or the phrase, it's two words, it's the most overused and abused phrase in the modern lexicon of the punditocracy and the political class. They invoke the moonshot for everything. Just use money in government programs to achieve some goal, the moonshot of X, the moonshot of Y. It's just, it's, <laughs> we hear it all the time. So, okay, let's just, yeah, I'm, as a young, as a young, uh, as a young boy, I, I, I mean, I followed the moonshots. I followed it uh, closely, obsessively. I mean, who did? It was amazing, amazing things to witness. And putting a dozen men on the moon, well, it cost a few hundred billion dollars in today's dollars. Uh, it was an amazing, amazing achievement, an amazing, not to denigrate it, an amazing stunt. But you know, consider this: last year was the fiftieth anniversary last year it's a half century since the last manned mission to the moon and in that half century looking back over that time what we haven't seen is the emergence of uh, moon colonies with thousands of colonists moon mining in fact we haven't seen anything resembling a mass migration of humanity moving to the moon to live the fact that that didn't happen is not a market failure that's my point it's not a market failure it was an amazing stunt. Uh, you could spend a few hundred billion dollars and do it again. And we could probably get a dozen people on the moon all at once next time and maybe live there for a while. It'll cost hundreds of billions of dollars. But there is no prospect, there's no chance with the physics we know about the machines we can build that all of humanity is going to move to the moon to live. It won't happen despite the stunt and no matter how much money we throw at it. Changing the world's engineered systems that provide food and fuel for all of humanity is equivalent to moving all of humanity to the moon. It won't change with the physics of systems that we know that we can build today. We can do stunts. We can spend hundreds of billions of dollars doing stunts, and we are going to, but we're not going to be changing anything very fundamental. So let me explain why that's the case with... Um, a group of uh, specific facts, if you like, um, you know, sort of a half dozen factoids that relate to the physics of money and the physics of energy. Now, let's start with the elephant in the room. I've talked about before, but has to be talked about again, over and over again. And this is the underlying minerals demands, the metals demands that are needed to build the preferred machines, wind, solar machines, and electric vehicles to affect the so-called energy transition. And, and let's be clear that when you look at all the forecasts and all the government plans and programs, both in the United States and in Europe, something on the order of three quarters of all the net new energy supply is forecast, planned, or expected to come from wind, solar, and batteries. Not hydrogen and nukes and you know biofuels, but wind, solar, and batteries. This whole thing is about three things, wind, solar, and batteries. It's what the whole monomaniacal obsession is with regard to and it quote energy transition. 
And this is just the fact that you have to start with in terms of the physics of energy and the physics of money, is that building wind, solar, and battery machines uses a lot more minerals. Uh, not just a little bit more minerals, but to build an electric car versus a conventional car, you need something on the order of 400% to 500% more minerals like copper, manganese, zinc, aluminum, lithium, obviously, cobalt, and so forth. And this is not my data being pulled out of the air. This, these are data points coming from the International Energy Agency and many other uh, respected organizations that study this. So this is just based on the engineering and physics of the systems that we can build. Not that we might imagine we might build one day, but that we can build today and that we're going to spend money on building tomorrow. So you don't build machines with things you imagine uh, in the future. You build machines today with things you know how to build now. And we know a lot about the machines that we know how to build now, the wind and solar machines and the electric cars and batteries. When it comes to producing electricity, using windmills and solar arrays instead of combustion turbines, combustion power plants, that entails an increase in the quantity of minerals mined from the earth to build the machines, an increase of somewhere between 3,000% and 6,000% more minerals to deliver the same unit of energy service to society. That is to produce the same hour of heat, same hour of light, the same mile of driving, the same uh, hour of compute time. You need, again, or we say it again, you need per unit of energy service delivered to increase the consumption and use in the mining and processing of minerals from between 3,000% and 6,000% across a class of about a dozen minerals and metals. This is just locked into the, the physics of the world we live in and the kind of machines we know how to build. And that means we'll have to mine a lot more minerals. In fact, the quantity of minerals that have to be mined increases by levels that are just astonishing. The world to to serve to serve the same quantity of energy to society with those machines instead of what we're using today to do it within the next decade or two, which is the commonly stated plan, we're going to have to increase the quantity of materials mined for these metals by uh, amounts that are just off the charts, eye-wateringly big. It's 700% more rare earths than we now mine, 2,000% more nickel than we now mine, 2,000% more co cobalt than we now mine, You know, like 3,000% more graphite than we now mine. 4,000% more lithium than we mine today globally. So the global mining sector is going to have to increase at, uh, at a speed and scale that frankly has never happened in human history because of the underlying physics of the nature of the systems that we want to use or want to fund. The impact of this, uh, if you want to think of it in physics terms, we'll call it, we'll call it um, well, scale matters, right? I mean... Uh, you can it, you can uh, lift up a pound fighting gravity easily, but you can't lift up a ton very easily. You have to find different different ways to do it. You can never do it. A human being can't lift a ton. So you have uh, you know I'm setting aside the uh, dead weight lifters that in the Olympics that do the dead weight lift. I think they might be a record of two thousand pounds, but I digress. So the scale of what I just described um, in terms of its impact on the consumption of minerals can be illustrated by another fact. And it sort of relates to the what I, what I would think of as inertia in systems. Big systems are hard to move. It's, that's fit law of physics. Uh, so pushing, pushing a car is harder than pushing a bicycle. You know, you're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting a lot, you're fighting a lot of inertia. 
big mass. That's true in economies. Economies are huge and moving them quickly is hard. And we've been trying by spending money to move the economy's uses of energy. And we spent the last 20 years and over $5 trillion in the Western world to replace hydrocarbons. And we have made some progress. The share of hydrocarbons that is used to provide world energy has declined by two percentage points in that two decades from to repeat the number I've said many, many times, over the last two decades and $5 trillion in spending, we've reduced the share of world's energy provided by hydrocarbons from 84% to 82%. Okay, it declined. And the share of world's energy supplied by wind and solar is now 3% of all the world's energy, about 3.5%, but call it 3%. So, you know, it's not nothing. It's a big system, but it's hardly, you know, it's hardly the big kahuna. We've got a long way to go. It's a big system. And even as the share of, of uh, wind and solar have uh, risen, so has the absolute quantity of hydrocarbons used by the world. The shares have declined, but the absolute quantity has gone up. You, you could get, you can understand the arithmetic here. Point of the fact that wind and solar are today only a few percent of global energy means that in order to uh, make it, they say 30%, almost a third of world energy, you're going to have to increase arithmetically. It's, uh, it's supplied by more than tenfold. It would, an increase of tenfold in wind and solar uh, would get you 30% of world's energy if world's energy demand don't go up. To get to the future where world's energy demands be bigger because it'll be a, a bigger world economically in terms of population, you need more than a tenfold increase. So you need a more than a tenfold increase in the use of wind and solar machines, machines that each on average require a tenfold increase in the quantity of metals and minerals to provide the same quantity of energy to society. I mean, you could do the you could do the math here, as they say. I mean, tenfold and tenfold. This is sort of hundredfold increases in in um, metals and minerals to uh, make energy machines. These are these are consequential. Uh, when I say physics of money, that the that physical reality of where we are and where we're trying to go will have economic economic consequences. But before I get to the economic consequences, let, let's let's just acknowledge the, the the goal in this. We all know this is not complicated. This is all in service of reducing the carbon dioxide emissions of uh, the United States economy. Okay. We don't have to debate about whether that's good or bad. Uh, you, you, you doubtless know from my tone, my opinion on that. And if you've read anything I've written, you know my opinion on that uh, as to whether it's an urgent thing to do or not. Uh, and whether we should do it at all, what I'm talking about is whether we can do it. And here's just the fact for you to have in your head, is that the total spending that's uh, planned in the Infrastructure Act that was passed by Congress uh, last year and the Inflation Reduction Act, the Orwellian-named Inflation Reduction Act, those two pieces of legislation have a total spending that's both direct and implied of about a trillion dollars of U.S taxpayer funding in the service of affecting an energy transition. So a trillion dollars is a lot of money. Let's just stipulate, even in Washington, and we will spend probably a lot of it. Congress might stop it a couple of years. They might not. We'll see. But we're going to start spending it. And it's to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And the Energy Information Administration has made a forecast, uh, which they've published, that if it all gets spent and all works as planned, to especially the latter caveat important, but all works as planned, uh, that would reduce the U.S. carbon dioxide emissions by about a billion tons of billion tons, but one gigaton of CO2. It, it just it, just for calibration, the U.S. has already reduced its carbon dioxide emissions 
over the last 20 years by about a gigaton. Uh, this is almost entirely re- the result of the shale revolution making natural gas cheap and uh, utilities switching voluntarily for economic reasons from coal to natural gas because it was a cheaper way to make electricity. But set that aside. So we've gone down and a, a gigaton, and we want to go down by spending. Bear in mind, in the past, this gigaton of reduction came with an economic benefit to society. In fact, if you sort of did the back of the envelope, the economic benefit to society from the markets just switching from more expensive to cheaper, more expensive electricity to cheaper fuels, natural gas, uh, the economic benefit to society at large probably approaches a trillion dollars, uh, certainly half a trillion you sort of calculate the benefits. And now we're going to flip that. We're going to try to reduce that gigaton by spending a trillion. So we're, we're going to spend everything we saved, whatever, right? It's just money. But here's here's what matters. Uh, over that same 20 years, uh, China's emissions of carbon dioxide have increased by seven gigatons. So we've reduced ours by one. Forget the rest of the world. China's increased their emissions by seven, and they're on track now to increase it by another two or three, or put differently. China's increased consumption of coal in the next, and they're planning to burn lots more coal. They've, it's no secret. They're, the, China's increased consumption of coal alone will wipe out all the emissions reductions that we are uh, going to attempt to affect by spending a trillion. They're burning more coal to save money. We're going to we're going to shrink our economy to save carbon dioxide. I would say it's a you know that's a that, that may have political consequence yet, but uh, at the moment it's it's uh, it doesn't appear to have had one. So, but again, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of the politics of this, but rather the policy of it. That's that's the policy. That's what we're doing. And this is not my finger on the scale of whether it's what's happened. It's what's happened. It's what we're doing. We're we're going to try to. Cut CO2 emissions by spending a trillion dollars, while China is going to, putting it in simplistic terms, make an extra trillion dollars while they increase their CO2 emissions by far more than we reduce ours. A very interesting dynamic. Uh, and they are, by the way, as I've said in pre- previous podcasts, burning that coal in service of, of refining the chemicals and minerals that we need to build the solar arrays and wind turbines, the batteries that we're going to build here. It's quite a, it's quite a geopolitical shift. We'll we'll have a future podcast again about the geopolitics of all this, but let's go back to the physics of money. So that's what's happening. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're trying to do. So we're spending money on, and uh, it's it's a uh, you know enacted uh, entirely legally by uh, the the majority uh, who voted for it in in the Congress. And whether a future Congress reverses it or not, we'll see. I, I think it gets reversed not because of politics, but because as I'm going to now talk more about because of the physics of energy and the physics of money. So first off, let's talk about the next factoid. I mentioned this before. It's important to keep repeating it. The International Energy Agency has pointed out that the uh, in order to supply all the minerals needed, copper, manganese, nickel, uh, zinc, graphite, uh, lithium, et cetera, the world is going to have to identify, find, and open up hundreds, this is the IEA, hundreds of new mines which will cost just those mines, never mind refining the metals. The capital expense for that is hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, two things you need to know is that, and as, again, as the IEA and UN and geological surveys have pointed out, the demand for all these metals and minerals will exceed the existing and 
planned and proposed supply for all of them, uh, starting in about two years or three years. So the world mines enough copper right now. And again, you know, wind and solar, about 3% of the world's energy. But as we increase that, uh, the demand for copper, nickel, you know, aluminum, cobalt, manganese, all these demands will rise and rise dramatically, as I pointed out. And you you need to more you need more supply, self-evidently. We know lots about the supply because there's lots of data on the supply of these metals. We know that the uh, these curves cross uh, in the next couple of years. There's plenty of studies on this. So we also know something about uh, the, the global spending, both historic and proposed and planned and announced by all the world's mining industries. The data show um, from many sources, from Wood McKenzie to IHS Platts to uh, uh, you know all the all the all the uh, consultants and organizations that follow the world's mining industry, that the the total amount of uh, capital committed to finding and opening new mines is declining. I mean, it's not going up. I mean, it's gone up a little bit in the last year or so, but it's, uh, it's the net trends for the last the last uh, decade or two are down, and the expected forecast and announced total spending to open up new mines is less than one tenth of that required to meet the minerals minerals uh, that will be needed to affect an energy transition to build all to build all these machines that we're going to start spending a lot of money subsidizing mandating and providing uh you know outright cash grants to businesses to build battery factories and stall installs you know solar module assembly factories it, bear in mind when you hear the word factory in America for solar solar panels for batteries the minerals are not coming from America. The refining is not being done in America. Each and every one of those factories, almost all of its input materials will come almost entirely from China, or at least 70 to 80%, depending on the mineral they need from China's refineries and from mines upstream that are almost entirely outside of the United States. So this is the equivalent of mandating the construction of, uh, and subsidizing the construction of Factories to build conventional cars, but not doing any any oil refining or any oil drilling at all in America, um, which is the, sort of the trajectory, trajectory people were worried about years ago. <laughs> all right, so let's go to another fact. So what what will happen? Well, people have asked me often when I point out these facts that the demand is going to exceed supply. Markets will will know this well in advance of it happening. Uh, well, this is sort of a, a ver you know this is an economics principle, but it's also sort of a it relates to the physics of systems. Uh, demand exceeds supply. You expect supply to expand, but there's inertia in systems. It's not just the capital inertia, that is you need money to build new mines and new refineries. Uh, it takes time. It just takes time. As the IEA has pointed out, the average time from, from a beginning of a discovery to opening a new mine is 16 years. Uh, you could imagine accelerating that. Let's say you could almost cut it in half to make it eight to 10 years. The reason it takes that long is that you have to move, find things, build roads, dig holes, move rock, build the machines that move the rock, build the machines that carry it, build the machines that crush the rock. All that stuff takes time. It's a form, if you like, again, of physics, of inertia. So if that time is longer, if that takes longer than the velocity of demand, that's where we get demand exceeds supply. And then you get the really obvious economic principle, the prices of the commodity for which there's more demand than supply go up, you get inflation. Well, copper, aluminum, nickel, iron ore, all these metals and lithium, they, they have volatile prices because there's short-term uh, 
discontinuities in supply demand balance. But over the last uh, seven years, eight years, the the cost of um, these basic metals are all all up around 200% or so. And uh, that's meaningful. Think about it. If 10% of the cost of making something is the cost of, say, the copper, but if I increase the cost of the copper 200%, you, you could do the math here, you make the final product about 20% more expensive. Make That's just on the backs of the copper input alone. Well, 20% more expensive machine, like a car, uh, is meaningful. That's, in, that's called inflation. I mean, inflation of a few percent is, is dreaded. You know, when it gets to double-digit percentages, it's an apocalypse in economic terms. So that's that's what's been that's what's been going on. That's we already know that lithium is the one that's up the most. It's about a thousand percent more expensive, uh, you know, basic than it was, um, or put differently, it's price today is a thousand percent of the price of six seven years ago. Uh, you know, it went up briefly. By the way, when the whole lithium um, uh, hype started um, seven years ago, then then relaxed as markets sort of watched the actual velocity of demand. And then now that, of course, lithium battery factories are being built all over the world by the hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, traders know that the, the demand is going to be epic as those factories come online. Price will go up. Okay. Uh, does that matter? Well, again, back to the sort of the physics principle, the inertia of the systems matters, how long it takes to build the system, you know, how fast you can push it, if you like, and how often you keep pushing at it matters. And I'll, I'll use the physics analogy again. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, you've seen this, if you take a, a, a big hammer and you have a big granite rock and you have a crack in the rock, and you take a metal wedge. If you hit it once, you don't crack the rock open. But if you keep hitting it over and over again, you can eventually provide enough force to have a systemic effect. You can break the granite rock in half. That's sort of a ham-handed analogy to say if you if you keep hammering markets with demand for more copper, say, uh, but then you stop uh, and the demand relaxes, you stop hitting it, uh, you know, everything relaxes back to normal, the rock isn't broken open. But if you keep hitting it over and over again, the demand keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming. Eventually you have an effect. So here's what we do know is that uh, economists at the International Monetary Fund have looked at the systemic demand of continually hitting markets with more and more appetite for copper, nickel, aluminum, cobalt, and whether or not that would have a systemic long-term effect on the prices for those metals rather than short-term short-term uh, volatility, short-term spikes. Well, the market can't respond fast enough, which means the effects will be long-term. And what they concluded, uh, and again, this is sort of locked into the ineluctable uh, features of the physics of inertia and systems and the economic consequence of inertia. They, they said that the IEA transition policies will cause metal prices, and let me quote this, to reach historical peaks for an unprecedented sustained period of roughly a decade. So what the IMF is saying is that they expect that eventually the markets will be able to supply the metals, but it'll take at least a decade. Okay, that seems about right. <clears throat> you know, So let's, we'll find out soon how happy uh, consumers and therefore politicians are uh, as we push systems by spending lots of money in creating artificial demand push the systems into the metals markets that create a systemic decade-long historical increase in metals prices for all metals, which will increase, uh, it should be obvious to say, the costs of all machines made with metals, everything from appliances and conventional cars and trucks to homes. And this will be a very broad systemic 
uh, inflationary impact. One that will come if we keep this up, it's sort of locked again into the physics systems we're talking about. We could talk about it in very specific terms. The most popular feature of the energy transition, other than the you know giant wind turbines and fields of solar panels, is the electric vehicle, the electric car. So we know a lot about how to build cars, and we know a lot about the materials that go into building cars that we know how to build. And here's just a fact for you. It's about up until about four or five years ago, the bill of materials of metals, aluminum, steel, nickel, cobalt, copper, lithium, neodymium, that sort of super metals you need to build an electric vehicle. The cost to buy just the materials to make one EV is about $4,000, roughly. It stayed, it was sort of stable going up and down. And then starting um, about three years ago, that basket of costs, and I keep in mind, I said three years ago, this predates the odious invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which disrupted supply chains. It did have a short-term impact on many commodity prices, supply chain issues, and so forth. And that's already evaporated, by the way, that short-term impact is gone. So the long-term, by that I mean several-year effect of the incredible rise in production and demand and supply and and mandates and subsidies for electric cars, that's resulted in the bill of materials of that suite of uh, half dozen metals to go from costing $4,000 to over $8,000, doubled. Okay, uh, car makers can either increase the cost, the uh, price of the car, or they could just absorb that. Uh, by and large, what they're doing is absorbing it. In fact, the CEO of General Motors uh, admitted explicitly uh, in a, an earnings call at the end of last year that they lose money on every electric car they make, that they expect to, to turn that production line profitable uh, in the coming years and, and, and in the hope and expectation that the costs of the material inputs will go down. I don't know what basis they think that'll happen, especially given what I just said, but that's their claim. So we've seen it already. Uh, electric cars uh, input costs are high and rising and um, all entirely on the backs of the cost of the input materials. And you have to believe that those materials are gonna get cheaper soon and cheap fast rather than more expensive for a long time to believe that the costs of making electric cars are gonna come down. This is almost entirely in the backs of the cost of the battery, of course, but it's other costs. Uh, electric cars use more copper outside of the battery. They're electric after all, but three to 400% more copper. They use more aluminum because their battery is so heavy. Battery in an electric car weighs almost a half a ton. And so to lightweight the rest of the car, because you're replacing 80 pounds of gasoline with a half ton fuel tank, you use lots more aluminum. So the cost of aluminum to make the frame has a big impact. But battery costs have been going up for the last two years. They're forecast to go up this year. In fact, they're forecast to go up next year. And forecasts now that say they'll come down after that, again, are entirely predicated on the assumption that the input material costs will go down. I'm looking for evidence that, that could, that's gonna happen, but that's the claim. I, don't, I just don't believe it. If the demand keeps up, the supply is not going to keep up. We know that because it takes so long to open mines and the prices will go up. We also know that solar module costs have been going up for the last four years, not down. You hear over and over again, solar is getting cheaper and cheaper every day. That did get cheaper and cheaper every day for 20 years. And it stopped getting cheaper three years ago. And again, same reason, cost to make a solar module, about 70% of it's in the cost of the material inputs. Same is true for wind turbines, by the way. There's been... Reports in the news lately that one of the world's biggest wind turbine makers, Siemens, uh, 
is uh, reporting massive uh, massive losses for its business unit because of material input costs. So they'll be raising the cost of wind turbines. The actual cost of wind turbines has been rising now for the last also several years. Again, because of the material input costs, the cost of steel, the cost of neodymium, the, these, uh, these costs uh, have a long tail. Uh, they, they are, to, to beat to death my analogy, they're anchored in the, the physics of the machines. Those machines use lots of materials because they uh, are trying to capture very dilute forms of energy, moving air and sunlight. By the way, if air wasn't dilute, uh, in, this, in energy terms, energetic terms, and the sun would dilute, there'd be no life on earth. If it was lots of wind, like hurricanes all the time, it'd be very, very hard for civilization to have evolved. Okay, let's turn to another sort of physics factoid that's inconvenient with respect to the physics of money and the future costs of the machines we're going to build. We're going to open more mines. We are going to open more mines. I have no doubt about that. We've been opening more mines uh, for all of human history, and we've been able to supply the minerals the world needs eventually. And if we get demand, again, running ahead of supply, prices go up, uh, then demand usually goes away to a great extent and supply accelerates to a lesser extent than people would like. But the combination of both happening simultaneously, less demand than you know, demand destruction, if you like, and more supply, you end up with you know eventually meeting demands. That's just always the case. But when it comes to mining, here's the, here's the thing that's important. What you want to know is how much rock yeah, the fundamental level, how much rock do you have to dig up, which always costs money, always takes time. Again, the physics the physics of the world we live in. How much rock do you have to dig up to get the ore you need? I mean, this is in in the in geology and ge geophysics terms, in the mining industry, it's called the ore grade. The percentage of the rock, the ore, that contains the, the target product, let's say copper, what percentage of it is actually the stuff you want? Well, the average ore grade for copper mines globally is about 1%. Uh, you can do the math here. That means you have to dig up 2,000 pounds of uh, rock to get to 20 pounds of copper out of that rock. You have to dig that rock up to do the rock up. It's called the overburden. It's in the way first. Then you have to dig up the ore and you have to move. Again, remember, you're moving 2,000 pounds of ore uh, that contain the 20 pounds of copper. You have to move that weight. You have to crush that rock. You have to dissolve the, the crushed rock with chemicals and to get the copper out. Um, what we do know, and this is true for all metals all over the world, that the average ore grades have been declining for decades, in fact, for centuries. Uh, the average ore grade a century ago for copper was four times higher than it is today. Uh, as ore grades decline, the quantity of rock goes up, the, the capital costs are impacted, the amount of energy you need, and emissions associated with digging the rock rises, but that's just the reality of the world we live in. The relevance here, of course, is uh, economics. I mean, it's going to cost more. And the question of whether or not we want to pay that price will be locked into sort of a, we'll call it a social and political question, but it will cost more. And it will use more energy. And this is, by the way, relevant to the whole motive for chasing more metals. If you use more energy, and it takes more energy to dig up and crush more rock, then you have emissions associated with that activity. And they are very significant. Again, something I've talked about in earlier podcasts, but uh, and, and we will return to another time. But just as a matter of uh, framing this, the quantity of carbon dioxide emissions associated with acquiring the metals and minerals and processing them to make an electric car battery is rather dramatic. In fact, uh, 
it can wipe out under ideal circumstances, half of the CO2 emissions that you save by not burning gasoline. And in many circumstances, wipes out all the CO2 emissions that you save by not burning gasoline, depending on where you dig up the rock and where you drive the car. What that means is that putting in very simplistic terms, electric vehicles are not zero emissions, they are elsewhere emissions. And how much emissions occur elsewhere depends on the nature of the rock you're digging up and the ore grades and the nature of the energy used to dig the rock up and process it. Turns out it's very complicated. We know a lot about it, but we do know this. About 40% of the global uh, energy used by the industrial sector, the entire industrial sector, about 40% of all that energy is used just to do mining. And we're going to increase the demand for minerals by, remember what I said at the outset, by astonishing quantities, you know, a thousand percent, the six thousand percent increase in demand for minerals, and we don't think that's going to have an impact on energy use and CO two emissions in the mining sector and costs there. Please, I mean, come on. Anyway, okay, so let's uh, let's go to um, the implications of this for not cars but for electric grids. It means that the windmills and the solar arrays will become more expensive. If they become more expensive, the electricity they produce will become more expensive not cheaper. And a key feature here is it, the batteries get more expensive. It means it's more expensive to store the electricity that's produced when the wind is blowing, the sun is shining. Uh, that, of course, has profound consequence. The trope that you're hearing all the time that wind and solar are, at, you hear the phrase grid parity, that they're cheaper than conventional energy, is it true? Uh, it is only true in the sense that when the wind is blowing, uh, when the wind is blowing, an onshore wind turbine does produce electricity cheaper than uh, many conventional power plants when the wind is blowing. Obviously, when the wind's not blowing, it's not. So the thing you'd want to know to keep the lights on is what the what is the total cost of using wind in a grid to keep the lights on all the time? We know a lot about that. We, we can do it by an engineering calculation. And if you do it by engineering calculations, you find out that wind and solar, when you count the cost to produce electricity whenever markets need it, are more expensive than coal, gas, and nuclear energy. They're not less expensive, the more expensive. It's just their costs to keep the lights on are hidden costs. We know we know that's true, by the way, by looking at sort of the bottom line. Um, the bottom line would be the answer to this question. As you increase the share of electric grids that have wind and solar, does the cost of residential electricity go down or up? This is an easy question to answer at the high level of abstraction. And by the way, keep in mind that you ought to, you, the subsidies to make wind and solar cheaper, those subsidies should amplify this effect, right? That is, if I take from taxpayers money to put wind and solar on the grid, that by definition means that the capital cost of putting the wind and solar on the grid is low and hidden elsewhere. So that should mean that the electric rates with the cheap wind and solar that's been made cheaper by subsidizing it should cause electric rates to go even lower, right? Just think think about the logic here. I haven't made the market pay the full cost, that is the electric market pay the full cost, wind and solar. I've moved some of the costs of the wind and solar capital over to the tax market. So the electric sectors costs are artificially lowered. And that should mean you'd think if the artificially lower the capital cost of the machines, and those machines are, we're told, inherently cheaper, then electric rates should go down. Well, in the physics of the world we live in, back to my physics of money, 
you have to operate grids to provide electricity whenever markets need it. And we know self-evidently that the sun doesn't shine all the time, the wind doesn't blow all the time. So you have to do something. When you do the something to keep the, the grid lights on, it turns out electric rates go up. And we know this. If we map out the U European Union data and drew, drew a graph, and I've shown this graph many places, others have, you can find it yourself by using the magic Dr. Google machine. If you if you mapped out on one axis, the share of electricity, it's from wind and solar per capita in Europe by different countries. And then on the y-axis, you put the cost of electricity. What you'd find is there's a one-to-one -one correlation. It maps this way. As you increase the share of wind and solar, you increase the cost of electricity across all of Europe and every country. Same is true, by the way, uh, in the United States. If you look at every state where the share of wind and solar on grids has increased, you'll find the average residential electric rate has risen. In fact, in the Midwest, uh, service territory of a utility called Excel, and it's a service territory with about 4 million customers, they've uh, that, that grid collectively has seen an increase in the share of capacity that's uh, on the grids that are wind and solar has gone up from under 5% to about 30%. It's a big increase. And the average electric bill uh, in that service territory has gone up 300%. Didn't go down. Remember, we're being told over and over again, this is cheaper. Now, why didn't it go down? Well, it didn't go down because it's expensive to operate uh, grids to provide electricity all the time with power sources that aren't available all the time. And the way you do that is you build two grids. Um, that, in, in essence, I'm being simplistic, but that's what you do. So Germany is, is the model that we're sort of following now with the new spending that's planned uh, from, our, from our Congress or from the last Congress. In Germany, uh, for example, what we can look at, our future is going to look like Germany's past. So last two decades, uh, Germany has roughly doubled the size of its electric grid. The share of uh, the capacity on its grid provided by conventional power plants, nuclear, coal, and natural gas, and oil, that combination, the quantity of those power plants has declined slightly, but it's essentially the same. It's about 80% of the grid that existed 20 years ago still exists. And Germany has added another whole grid, roughly that size, a little bit bigger, of wind and solar. So they've increased the total size of its electric system by twofold. The consumption of electricity in Germany over that 20-year period has gone up only about 10%. So they've made a grid twice as big. So even if they cost exactly the same, in capital terms, it's twice as expensive. And uh, so they build a grid twice as big. And their electric rates have more than doubled in Germany. Uh, and episodically, they get even higher than that because suboptimally, as they've discovered with the invasion of Ukraine, it really is a very fragile grid. But, and overall, at the high level of abstraction, this is what you need to know, that that incredibly economically destructive path has led to a state where Germany gets now 6% of its total primary energy from wind and solar. So they're ahead of the United States and they're ahead of the world, but it's been a pretty expensive experiment as a consequence of, as I've said, and I'll keep saying, the physics of energy. So when I say all these things, let me let me wrap up with, um, I mean, there's a lot more to be said. I'll say a lot more in the future about this. But when you say all these all these things, and I did recently at a, um, at a at a really interesting event at the Hoover Institute, I, I, I gave a lecture in much shorter form, not unlike, not unlike this, saying many of these, these kinds of facts to a group of people that are largely economists. And uh, when you say all these things, there are two, there are two responses that come back. 
Uh, one I expect all the time. Another one came from this from questioner at the Hoover Institute that I didn't expect. Uh, the one, one of course, is, oh, the technology will get better. That is, the battery and wind technology will get better. They'll get By better, it means that they'll get more efficient. That is, they'll use smaller quantities of minerals to produce the machines that produce the same amount of energy. Of course they will. Of course they'll get better. Things always get better. But we know how much better they can get with the physics of the technologies that we have today. And we are going to build with the trillion dollars we're planning to spend now in America, machines we know how to build, not machines we imagine building in the future, not machines we'll invent in the future, but the technologies that are going to be used and to spend the money that's being deployed now are the technologies that exist now. It's a tautology. Saying that it'll get better in the future is silly unless you say, well, because I know it's going to get better in the future, let's just wait and not spend the money until we have the better technology. I, for one, would vote for that. Just saying. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, try not to be facetious and snarky. Uh, it's hard sometimes. That the, the, the assertion that we will get better technology, better batteries, is obviously true. In fact, far better batteries are, are possible, and we know far better technology exists for uh, electricity storage in principle at the laboratory level. But turning that into useful storage systems that aren't just stunts like a moonshot, but things that are scalable society levels takes a long time. Some of it will never scale because they are pure stunts, imaginative fun things. Maybe superconductors are a great way to store electricity. Uh, they're just really expensive and they're not, there's just no chance with the kind of superconductors we know how to build today uh, that we can store electricity at society scales. It's not going to happen. It'd be like, it's exactly the equivalent of saying we can put all people, all the people in America on the moon in the next decade, not going to happen. So the, invoking that better technology is sort of a, one of these standard lines that is utterly meaningless when it comes to the realities of what we're planning to spend money on. We're spending money on what we know how to build. What we know how to build uses the kind of metals and minerals that I just described, and we'll have the kinds of cost impacts that I just described. It's locked into the physics of the machines that we're going to build with the trillion dollars that we're planning to spend. That's going to happen. It will have a consequence. We'll see how tolerant markets are to these prices. That's what, or whether or not markets don't actually do it and prices relax, which, by the way, is what I, why I think there isn't the kind of investment everybody hopes for in mining, because I think the mining sector understands full well what I just outlined here and is planning to put at risk hundreds of billions of dollars of capital on the hope that governments in the world will keep pushing uh, this path. So that's a typical question. Technology will get better. Yes, it will. In fact, you know, people, uh, in fact, one of the questions at the Hoover Institute was that uh, obviously I'm a, a kind of a myopian. I don't understand how fast and better technology will get. And you might imagine I invoked my book. I said, well, actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one who's pro, I'm very bullish about uh, the emergence uh, and the impact of new technologies. It's just not the technologies they imagine about how we produce energy. We don't have very many new ways to produce energy. We have lots of new ways that are economically meaningful for consuming energy, which of course is the essence of what's in my, my book, The Cloud Revolution. But anyway, the other question took me, took me aback was somebody accused me of being a Malthusian uh, by invoking the limits to the supplies of copper, nickel, and uh, lithium and graphite. Uh, this uh, this interlocutor said that I was uh, I was obviously a Malthusian. A Malthus has been proven to be wrong in so many other domains. You know, Malthus 
was the uh, 19th century economist who, um, who, who, who said that we would uh, we would run out of coal, we would run out of food because uh, the demand would exceed supply. There just wasn't enough stuff in the earth, not enough way to grow food, not enough way to dig up enough materials. And of course, uh, that's not what happened. Uh, there's lots of Malthusians around today. I'm not one of them. I, I don't have any doubt. I've said many times, I'll say it here again, for all practical purposes, there's an infinite uh, a quantity of energy in, in all practical purposes, an infinite quantity of any of the particular metals we would like to consume in the uh, crust of the earth, whether it's gold or cobalt or whether it's aluminum or nickel. Uh, that's not the issue. It's not whether there's enough uh, in, a, in a resource sense. It's the time it takes with the technology we have to get to the stuff. We have been unlocking new supplies of metals, minerals, and foods at greater and greater levels over all of human history, especially accelerating that in the recent decades and you know half century with, with better technologies. That'll keep happening. We'll produce enough copper. It, we'll produce the kinds of quantities of copper that are imagined to make all cars electric eventually, if we wanted to go that route. And it wouldn't shock me if eventually uh, the majority of cars were electric, but that only incidentally is uh, even if all cars were electric from the viewpoint of today's consumption of oil, it's about a quarter of today's global oil consumption. Very meaningful, but in a world that's twice as big economically in the future, just think about the math here. Uh, the total energy consumption doesn't quite double because of efficiencies, but goes up a lot. Let's say it goes up 50%. And we're going to take away a quarter of oil demand in the auto sector by making them all electric. You still have to produce the same quantity of oil in the future in that scenario as you do today. <laughs> I mean, because there aren't any batteries that make uh, a vision of electric airplanes possible, as in one example of, uh, of the challenge with these sort of chimerical visions of energy transformations. So anyway, the Malthusian... The Malthusian insult was, it took me aback. Um, we, we, we don't have a shortage. Uh, we don't have a shortage of materials in the world. Uh, but time, timing matters. Uh, in, in the timeframes that matter where we're spending this trillion dollars over the next uh, decade, there aren't enough. And we don't have the means to produce enough. So something else will happen. And that something else will be politically and socially consequential uh, because it will lead to very, very high uh, inflationary pressures on metals, minerals, and energy, which uh, is something that when it actually happens, does frighten the hell out of most politicians. So that's uh, that's my uh, disquisition, my rant uh, uh, for this episode on the physics, the physics of money, the physics of energy. Uh, I will return to this subject, uh, as you know, again in the future. Uh, I've gotten some questions lately that are pretty good. So uh, maybe the next episode, I'll turn to the, I keep threatening to return to answering some questions that have come in, coming in both for emails and texts and uh, and uh, at the platforms. So if you have questions, I, I encourage you to uh, to send me a note. Uh, when you're putting a rating at the, uh, the platform that you like, you can sometimes put in little notes, most of them, or questions or provocations. Uh, please feel free to do that. And of course, feel free to give us a ranking, uh, a good one. This is what all of us who do podcasts always implore you to do. And until next time, uh, in the next episode, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optist. Optist.